This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Hey folks, welcome back here in the workplace. I'm Peter Capelli, professor of management here at the Wharton School, and with me is the fabulous Greg Shea. You want to say anything about yourself? <laughs> oh, there's no way I can do better than what you just did. So yeah, I think the I fabulous. Should, we'll stop at the fabulous. I'll just stop yeah. there. Greg's a longtime professor here My at the Wharton School. My wife will be School. calling in to contradict <laughs> that. But. Uh, Long-time professor here at the Wharton School, organizational psychologist, and uh, we will get to those issues in a little bit. In this half hour of the show, we're going to talk about refugees coming into the United States or possibly not coming into the United States and some of the issues for them, how it's different than immigrants uh, per se, and um, what this means for the labor force and for the economy when these folks are coming into the United States. And with us is Hamiltel Bernstein, who is a senior research associate at the Urban Institute. And more important for this conversation, she's a principal investigator on the annual survey of refugees for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. We're going to talk a little bit about that survey and what they found here in just a minute. So, uh, Hamiltel, welcome. Thanks for having me. Are you in our nation's capital today? Oh yes, I am. <laughs> you don't, say, you today, don't sound. Yes. Yeah, you don't sound very enthused <laughs> about that, right? Well, so, it's been an interesting place to be. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. Uh, so, tell us a little. Let's just back up for the for the uninformed here, and tell that us a little. That would be you and me, for sure. Uh, tell us a little about just what is a refugee as opposed to an immigrant, and what do we know about how they come into the United States or how they don't come into the United States. Yeah. Um, so refugees are humanitarian entrants. So they're being let in to the U.S. because they're fleeing from dire circumstances of violence, war, or persecution. Okay. And those refugees that are resettled in the U.S., that is a tiny portion of the total displaced population across the world. Millions of people who are you know, fleeing from their, their countries and cannot return safely. Mm-hmm. A very small portion are deemed to be the most vulnerable. Um, they may be in refugee camps and having spent decades or years in refugee camps, or they may be in an urban environment. Um, and there's a system that UNHCR runs where... Um, United Nations yeah. High Commission for Refugees? Yeah. Ding, ding, yeah, ding. Exactly. Points, points for yeah. So yeah. they register people... Yeah. As refugees, and then a very small portion get um, what's called permanent resettlement, and they're resettled to a host country. Yeah, can I stop um, you there and, and just give us a sense of how big is the refugee situation in the world right now? I've heard some numbers a while ago; they were astonishing. But what what what's your sense? What's your do you know? Yeah, my understanding is there's over 20 million refugees 20 registered refugees. by UNHCR wow. right now. Okay, and, and where are most? Where are they mostly coming from? Um. So that's a great question. So we're mostly talking about um, Africa and Asia and the Middle East. Yeah. Those mm-hmm. are the places where there are violence, right. um, you know, and and war. Um, a very, very small share of those are being resettled in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and, of course, a much smaller share in recent times than in uh, what, the last uh, few decades. Yeah, what percentage of these folks get resettled someplace, or roughly how many, do you have a sense, around the world get resettled into um, host my countries? My understanding is 
only 1% of registered refugees are permanently resettled. In, um, around the world? In, yes, no yes. Kidding. In receiving countries, you know, you may have heard that Germany or France or Canada, the U.S., wow. some of these countries are, are permanently accepting refugees and providing supports for yeah. their integration. And, so roughly 200,000 out of 20 million get resettled. Mm-hmm. And okay. in the past, the U.S. has really um, received a large share of this total. So they've really um, contributed in a very large way <laughs> to mm-hmm. international burden sharing around this humanitarian issue. And that is what the administration and recent developments in, in immigration refugee policy have really stepped away from. Okay. So... And so the if you look at it per capita, like, you know, the U.S. is a big country, bigger than Europe, uh, combined, uh, Western, yeah, I guess it's Europe per se now. Um, what's the, which country per capita admits the most refugees? That is the biggest burden, I suppose, on the country. Um, I'm not sure what it is now. Um, that's a great, I'm, I can't, I can't really give you an answer. To okay. give you a sense of the context and the numbers... It is an interesting issue about per capita because we're only letting in only. We're letting in around 70,000 refugees. So every year the cap, the bar is set by the president. For quite a few years in a row, it's about 70,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So you can put that in perspective with the size of our population. It's a very small part of our population. And I think Germany was accepting huge numbers. Am I right in thinking they were taking in about a million? They took in about a million? Yeah, uh, they did take in a million. That was part of burden sharing around the Syrian refugee crisis yeah. in particular. Yeah, right. Um, right. Yeah, it was a much larger lift. Okay. So, so we've been... I, ta- I just, no. just want to check. So what happens to the 99% that don't get resettled? Where do they go? So some portion of them stay in refugee camps, and others are um, what they call also called integrated in a confusing use of the term into community. So they become, you know, residents um, in different cities across the world. So there's a lot of talk in the international development space around migrants and refugees um, just, you know, as becoming residents and how how do we maximize their success in these communities Mm -hmm. and what sort of pressures do they cause on infrastructure um, and for other residents. So there can be places like in South Africa where there's really massive xenophobia and violence mm. against these groups. Um, can I be, back, can we just easy. yeah back you up on that a little bit? And make sure we get it. So they can be resettled, uh, but not and not permanently admitted. Is that the distinction that we're talking about? Refugees. These are people who are brought into a country and allowed to stay and permanently sort of settle in the country. And then there's another category of people who come in uh, to the to host countries, but don't have that status. Is is that what's going yes. on? Oh, yeah, okay. and the vast majority of refugees are not permanently resettled Ooh, in, okay. in a place. So this is just a, a part of human existence in the U.S. and in the, in the world. There's okay. just a vast number of people who are on the move, yeah. who are vulnerable and cannot return to their home countries for so, you know a range of reasons. In the U.S., my guess is there's not nearly so many in that second group, right? People who are not uh, granted the right to stay and they're just kind of passing through because it's mm-hmm. difficult to get here. Is that right? Or what do we know yeah. about that? So we have that geographic uh, reality, right? On the other hand, so this is where the terminology gets a little confusing. So in the U.S., we use the term refugees. Those are people who are part of this 1% 
who have been permanently resettled, that's around 70,000 a year, at least historically. That number has gone way down in yep. recent, okay. recent times. But there's also what we call asylum seekers. Asylum seekers hmm. are people who arrive um, on our territory and at that point um, file for asylum status. Um, saying, you know, based on the same sorts of circumstances that a refugee would okay. um, claim, which is discrimination back home, inability to return um, okay. because of their own safety and security. So just to and, re- recap, so you could be, if you're a refugee, it's a long process. You are uh, considered while you're in a camp before you ever get here, asylum seeker, you pop in here, sometimes on a, a, a visa, but sometimes not, Right. And then you're allowed to ask for asylum, and you might get the yes, you might get a no. That is right. And I and I made – it's really bothered me the way the, the term refugees, there's a lot of confusion around the term. And a lot of what um, people have said is the refugee crisis in Europe, for example, is actually – it's not about permanently resettled refugees like we uh-huh. have in the U.S. Okay. It's about this – this more unregulated flow, yep. this mixed flow mm-hmm. of asylum seekers, you know, people moving to Europe for humanitarian as well as economic circumstances. And there's just a lot of people moving for a whole number of reasons. That's, you know, that's that's just how things work. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and when we talk about refugees in the U.S., it has a very specific legal meaning. Yeah. And it's people who have gone through intense, in, intense vetting and have been waiting for a long time mm-hmm. um, and have been screened intensely um, before they are um, hosted by our resettlement agencies and brought here. So l- let's uh, get to the numbers now. So it had been 70,000 refugees come to the U.S., resettle the formal process it's a number determined more or less unilaterally or completely by the president, by the administration? Yeah, more or less unilaterally. I, okay. I think um, they are supposed to consult with Congress, but I think in practice it's basically the president has the, has the power to decide the number. Okay, so it had been 70,000, I guess, under President Obama this last year or so, and what is it now? So for fiscal year 2018, which we're currently in, the administration's at 45,000, Okay, um, which is a much, much lower number. Do you think um, we'll even get there? No, no one. Basically, it's, it's pretty clear um, that um, the admissions have slowed way, way down. Um, okay. And let me just... They've let me... only let in, I think, around 11 or 12,000, maybe up to 15,000 by now. Yeah. Um, and let me just ask your sense of that. Is that um, intentional or is that a lack of staffing and systems in order to process these people? Is this slow walking it or is it like other parts of the government where they haven't appointed enough people and they're short on staff and such? Well, I've heard a couple of different explanations. Um, there's the travel ban, um, which the Supreme Court is now considering, yep. um, which has in, invoked higher scrutiny for people from 11 countries, um, some of which have really, really would normally have very high refugee numbers like Syria, Syria. Somalia, and mm-hmm. others. Um, there's also, I've heard, um, things around staffing. Um, so, for example, federal agency staff is used to do some of the admissions and the screening. And my understanding is that some of that staff have not been made available. Okay. Um, 
And but I think I think this issue around um, higher screening and and um, slowing down the screening and making staff less available are both slowing down the process. Yeah, we want to talk in a minute about how they do once they get here. But what does the process look like? So let's say you're a refugee, you've applied for uh, refugee status in the United States, and you've been accepted. And let's say you're in a refugee camp in Syria, okay, uh, or outside of Syria, right? Um, what happens next? How do you get to the U.S.? Do they have to pay their own way, or what happens? Oh, that's an interesting question. So what happens is that we have the U.S. has um, works with nine uh, resettlement agencies. There are nine major resettlement agencies that have affiliates across the country, and um, they decide um, kind of amongst themselves, they share and decide which one of them um, should receive individual cases that get through the screening. Okay. Um, so they meet regularly and decide, you know, where their resources can best meet the needs of a particular um, family and individual. Oh, so this is kind of like college admissions, not to trivialize it, but, <laughs> but they've each got applications and there are people deciding their fate, right? They're not going to admit them all, right? What do they look for? No, they're not picking. They're not picking. Oh, they're so, not picking. Okay. No, they're okay. not picking. They're just deciding who among the resettlement agencies and which and where in the country uh, a given individual who has been admitted should be placed. Okay. And how do they decide that? So they try to match it with um, making sure they have the resources needed to support that family or that, that person's needs, okay. yeah. uh, for, for one. So, you know, having staff that speaks that language, having um, resources to support the needs of that person. Also, if... Um, a person already has family in the U.S., which is the experience of a lot of, mm, okay. of entrants. They yep. will put them with their family. Yeah. So one of the things that, that I've heard and possibly observed a little bit is that for whether it's a good thing or bad thing, I don't know, but we are developing new ethnic communities, geographic communities. For example, I have uh, family in upstate New York, and they tell me mm -hmm. that there's a huge number of Bosnians that have been mm -hmm. resettled around their communities. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, big, big percentage of that um, uh, populations there are now that group. Is that kind of done on purpose that the resettlement agencies say, here's a good place to put people in now we're going to move a bunch of them there from the same country? They try to mix them up? Or what? what is their sense about or what's the the order behind, you know, creating these ethnic communities versus just placing people you know, in spots which might work for for them as individuals, because they all seem. You know, it doesn't seem random. You know, that so many end up all in the same place from the same countries. Yeah, it's pretty complex. It's it's extremely complex. Um, they also um, consult. You know, the local community and states. There are fifty state refugee coordinators, and um, they're required to consult with the local community about these sort of placement decisions as well. Um, so it's not just unidirectional, the resettlement agencies deciding what happens. Okay. Um, so let's, but, sorry, I was going to see if we could shift us here a little bit and talk now about uh, things from your report, mm -hmm. um, particularly what happens to these folks. Uh, hang on just a second. I wanted to ask Greg something. <clears throat> and that is um, your sense, Greg, before we get into this, and then we'll find out the reality of this, so this is guess okay. what the report All says. Right. Um, and that is, if you are these folks coming into a community, um, what would you guess the biggest problems are? 
in terms of making the adjustments besides the material things like getting a job and that kind of stuff? I, I would think if if they don't speak English, language has got to be unless it's a unless it's a massive community that they could then yep. survive in their mm-hmm. whatever their their native language is. That language would be. Um, what do you think would be the um, once once you've sort of figured out how the language works culturally? What do you think would be the most difficult things to get your arms around? Let's say you're Syrian, Middle Eastern, coming here to the United States. What do you think would be? Yeah, my guess would be it would depend. Sure, good, always an <laughs> right. academic always, answer. Uh, yeah, yeah. Good, good academic answer, uh, and that the that it would then move into some piece that's cultural, right? Yeah. So, yeah. How, what are the what are the taboos that exist in this society, and what do I do with what were the taboos that were in my yeah, society? Yeah. Um, and, and trying to figure that stuff out and yeah. who helps me with those things, and how do I survive the process of learning that? Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess it has to do with with young people and uh, dating uh, issues. That that, that would be that that that's going to be my guess, but we don't know, so we're just guessing. So Hamuto, what do you think? Uh, tell us a little about what happens to folks when they come in and resettle as refugees. Yeah, so um, I would say one of the cultural issues that I've heard a lot about in this work is about women being employed. Yeah. Although, um, you know, from a lot of Middle Eastern countries and other places, or just in their experience, they've just been living in a refugee camp for decades, and the idea that... Um, the primary caregiver would have to go out and work in addition to everyone else in the home can um, sometimes be um, an issue. Yeah. Um, another key sort of on the flip side is, you know, a lot of these are families that have either kids um, coming along or kids that are born here in the U.S. and are U.S. citizens. And, you know, those kids really serve as this bridge oftentimes, you know, oftentimes in immigrant families. Mm. Um, where they're going to schools and interacting with a really wide range of kids from different backgrounds. Right. And they right. can... Um, they explain to know. their parents how the country works, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a really, yeah. really key issue here. You know, I remember that uh, from my own family. That my grandmother never learned to speak English, you know, and um, my father and... Um, and my father came when he was two, I think, and his brother and sister a little older than that. And it's remarkable how similar this the story was, you know, that they didn't speak English. And they had to somehow figure it out. And then they kind of taught, you know, the rest of the family something about you know, how that The thing that's, that strikes me as one of the differences would be what's it like to come, what you just said as a parenthetical, after a decade or two in a refugee yeah. camp, right? Yeah. Uh, what's to be your point? Any place, what's right. your point of reference? Yeah, right. And and right. what's your point of feeling that you have any control over what happens next to you? Right. Or how scared you are right. that I'm gonna right. if I violate something, uh, I don't go home. Yeah. I go back someplace where I don't want to go. Yeah, because ref- refugee camps are not the most pleasant place and to very be. Very few right? people sign up for tours. Yeah, no, for sure. No, they're not. And in a lot of places, these people um, either are not allowed to be employed or it's just really difficult for them to be employed. Before, yeah. um, their kids mm-hmm. might not have access to schooling. They might, you know, be emerging from really violent contexts where they ha- they are suffering the effects of mental or physical illness, yeah. post traumatic stress, and everything else. And those things are going untreated. It's a um, lot. It's a lot all at once, and a lot of you know freedom of responsibility all at once. And well, I wanted to make sure that we got to the heart of your story here, and because we just got a couple of minutes left now, and that is that these folks actually do remarkably well when they resettle, though. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's that's kind of where I was coming from with this report, which is if you listen to the debate, to the debate, there's there's this framing of refugees first as one monolithic block, as if they're all the same, right. but also that they're they're posing all these security threats and economic threats and cultural threats. But the reality is that the research shows they they're very diverse, a very diverse group. But they, on the whole, they do pretty well. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is a period of adjustment uh, when they first arrive, um, but they're participating in the labor force at very high rate. Mm-hmm. Um, the more time they spend in the U.S., the higher their earnings are, right. um, the, the less likely that, that they're still using public benefits to which they have access at the beginning. Right. Um, their English language proficiency gets better. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, most become citizens. Mm-hmm. And many become homeowners and business owners. So they really, you know, on a whole, become part of their community. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of communities that, you know, are really thankful and welcoming to yeah. Yeah. Uh, for the contributions that refugee yeah. families have made. And, um, and if you think of any group that would be really, really happy to be here, they're, they're top of the list, right? So if you yeah. took uh, the broad title of immigrant, which uh, you, you helpfully split in, split up, but if you took out the refugees, uh, do you have a sense of how they do compared to some of the other groupings of of, uh, uh, of immigrants that you mentioned? Do they do better, not as well, higher return or exit um, financially, anything, you know, across the type of immigrant? Well, let's see. I think I did, in some of the research that I looked at, they do compare them to other foreign-born in general, which is a which is a very broad group, mm-hmm. right? It's people who have been here just a couple of years and people who have spent 40 years here, people here on different visa statuses. I'm, I am I can't say too much about that. Okay, okay. that's fine. Okay. Unfortunately. Okay, well, that's good. Well, we should probably let you go. It's a really interesting study and report, and I guess if people want to see it, they can go to urban.org, the Urban Institute's uh, website, and pull down the report then. Um, this is Hamoudel Bernstein, and she's a senior research associate at the Urban Institute, and this study is about refugees and bringing evidence to the conversations. Thanks very much for being with us. We're going to take a break in just a couple of minutes here. Well, we're going to take a break right now for just a couple of minutes, and then we're going to come back, and Greg and I are talking about a number of things, aging workforce, among others. So hang in there. We'll be right back with you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 